Jesus and Bigfoot. Say As they slide. Okay, now I'm ready. Well, we're my voice warm up. What? I'm not gonna use it. Don't you, worry. Okay. you gotta use that if you recorded it. <laughs> Santa shed six silly reindeer as they slide. Is that a real one? Is that like a vocal warm up that I don't know? Of? I don't think so. I just made it up. All right. I hope Santa's not shagging reindeer. We're just gonna keep this blooper oh. real here. <laughs> and oh, this is our serious. Po- I thought we were doing dogs are smarter than people. No, we're starting with Dude No, our serious podcast. Ready? Sorry, people. We're gonna put on serious NPR style voices. Mine's for a little are, bit. Mine, mine is already there. All right, ready? I am. I'm just going to put it out there. Crime is stupid, and murder. That's beyond stupid. And if you're murdering kids or women or people who are marginalized or oppressed, I'm just not good with you. I have not achieved the enlightened state that allows me to still love people who terrorize other people. But when you pick out victims who are mom and kids, you're a certain kind of predator that I can't deal with. I just canceled the cult of Carrie, didn't I? No. Anyway. No, no. I think anyway. most of your cult agrees with that. Anyway, They for- better if you're a cult. Well, they <laughs> get right. the hell out. You have to listen to me. You get so scary. <laughs> Anyways, for me, a lot of murders hit a little too close to home. As we know from the last few podcasts, my mom was stalked and interacted with a murder once, murderer once. And it was only her wits and ability to lie under pressure. She's very good at that, actually. <laughs> that allowed her to live and for me to even be here right now. Um, but this is not the case. We talked about that one a long time ago. This has nothing to do with my mama. This is actually the case of the Allentown Four or the Bear Brook Murders. <gasps> That's you, in New Hampshire, right? Yes, you should. Oh. You should cue the scary music right here. Ooh, scary. I don't have any scary music. And if you remember, we recently had a podcast about Bigfoot and my interaction yes, with Bigfoot, yes. and it was at that same location, right? I got you. Maybe you interacted with a. Serial killer. It's very possible <gasps> that I could have twisted all my memory. Wow. I mean, Once you, you do that all the time with me. So. Shut up. That's not true. <laughs> Anyways, this podcast is not about Bigfoot. It's not about my mama. It's about a man, one man, who was a lot more of a monster than that furry cryptid ever could wow. have been. And this story is convoluted as heck. As so many New Hampshire stories and people are. I speak from experience being one. So here we go. Here we go. Get ready for the story of a man who killed over and over and over his families. His families? His loved ones. How many families has he got? Well, here we go. We're going to get started. You're so cute. Oh, thank you. So here we go. This podcast is about how sometimes we might not be married to a Shawnee and we might want to disappear on purpose. Maybe life seems too much. Maybe it seems cool to start fresh. Maybe you want to cut ties and just move forward and move on, right? Yeah. And a lot of single moms feel exactly this way. So when a man comes into their life, a new man, seeming to love them and their kid and suggest, hey, baby, why don't we just start over? There's a certain kind of appeal there, right? You know, as long as they get a plan. Like, well, <laughs> you know, we watch enough reality shows, like off-the-grid building shows and stuff nowadays. Uh, like, you need to have a plan. Don't just go out there freelancing it because that's bad. All right. 
So if homie doesn't have a plan... Don't run away with him. Don't go away with him. But sometimes we really just want to run away. We want to escape our lives. Right. You know, like I feel like a lot of divorces happen because of boredom oh, or definitely. because like we've spiraled into like this kind of... Like if you were engaged with somebody when you got divorced and you truly were like from married to single. Yeah. Especially if you have kids. Yeah. That could be crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? So I you're mean, saying most pe- divorced people are already like cooking up? No, I'm, I don't know if I go most. <laughs> <laughs> I right. go fifty percent. I don't know if <laughs> oh I go fifty one percent. I think you probably. I, go mean, I might go seventy five percent. Oh, ninety two percent is probably uh, right. All right. So, anyways, my point is sometimes we want to run away and we want to start again, and sometimes when we do that, we're very, very vulnerable because we're getting out of other places, right? Exactly. And we fall for the knight in shining armor, who ain't no knight in shining armor. What? I know it's hard for you that to understand because so you're such happens. a knight in shining armor. Anyways, so in this very convoluted story of New Hampshire and murder and death, yeah. Right? We're going to start with Curtis Kimball and Unsun Yun and set this scene. Right? I'm glad you're reading this. So it's 2010. 2010. Go back like 12 years. (laughs) Yeah, 12. (laughs) Whatever. I can't do that. No, you were right. I was wrong. All right, Stoner. All right, it's 2010 and a murderer dies in a California prison. He's there for killing and dismembering his wife, Unsun Jun, back in 2002. That's 20 years right there. That's a shit ton of time. (laughs) So this woman, she's amazing. She's like a 45-year-old chemist. She's working for Syntex, a biotech company. She's brilliant. She's a potter. She's artistic. She's creating all the time. And she's just kind of all around amazing. She's a free spirit. She's a little boho. She's a little intellectual explorer. She's kind of the woman I'd like to be, right? She Maybe. Maybe. But you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. I'm just saying I like to be a little boho and a little <laughs> Oh, you are a little explorer. boho and an intellectual explorer. I don't explorer. know, man. I don't feel like I'm boho enough. I think my inner boho is a little un unrealized. Anyways, thank so, God. Uh, keep going, buddy. What do you mean? No, thank no, God. no, this is a professional podcast. Oh, we gave that Pay up attention. like a month ago. We're no longer professional. It's all over. It's not until yeah, this episode. No, we started failing on our professionality like last episode. All right, so, so tell us about Unsung Jung. She's lonely and amazing, but mostly she's kind of lonely. Her family immigrated from Korea. She's had a hard time in the U.S. finding Mr. Right. And her cousin told a specific true crime pro- true crime, true crime podcast, the Bear Brook podcast, that she thought her cousin felt like she just didn't fit in. She didn't fit into America. She didn't fit into California. She just didn't fit in here, right? All right. And I think that happens a lot for people from one country who move to another country or well, one probably. culture and move to another that culture. be a big change. Like, I don't have that. Not everybody's really that adaptable, you know? No. Um, during a recent writing class that I was teaching yeah. out of Austin, there was a great guy also from California, and he... I can't remember. Um, he was from Southeast Asia originally, his family, but they moved, his 
parents, one of his parents was in the army and they moved around all the time during his grow up. So he moved from country to country to country to country to country, right? Yeah. All those thudding noises are just Sean drinking, um, which is what he has to do to stay married to me. There's no thudding. But anyway, he moved moved from country to country to country to country and he never, like in in the class, he's like, have you ever felt, you know, he asked us all, he was giving his presentation because I make the people give 20 minute presentations during the six month program because I am a hard ass teacher, but it's all about writing craft, etc. And during that presentation, he um, asked everybody in the class, like, do you feel like you've ever not fit in or not belong to a place? And nobody other than I raised their hand. Really? Yes. And then he called me out on it. And I was like, well, that's good. He and, has I was, to. and I was like, F word. I was hoping other people would have raised their hand. I didn't realize I was going to be the only uh-huh. one. Uh-huh. And he was like, how do you not feel like you fit in, Carrie? I was like, oh, um, well, it's because I like went from Canada to the U.S. to Canada to the U.S. when I was a little kid. And also, I think because my family is a little bit wacky and, you know, you grow up thinking you're a whole bunch of these ethnicities and it turns out you're a whole bunch of these ethnicities. And so I just never had that sense of belonging in that way like to me i think it was more about family right but to him and unsunyon i think it's more about country and culture and even just from having a limited exposure to canada versus the united states when i was a kid canada's really close to the u.s which is what i also said then like in class it was enough to mess me up. <laughs> Canada messed me yeah. up. Canada, you are on like All right. threat down. So what were we talking All about? Alright, so anyway, she's uh one son young, like Oh, she's boho. Yeah, right. she's like boho and she her family immigrated and she just feels lonely. She doesn't feel like she fits in according to her cousin looking back, right? Yeah. And so it's a while ago. In this story, it's December, it's 1999, and she tells her parents that she wants them to meet her new boyfriend, Larry Vanner. Larry is a handyman, and he seems all in on their romance, totally in love. And they move together in her house in Richmond, California, of course. Not New Hampshire, but I promise you, you know, Hampshire eventually comes in. Because we always want a story. I'm sure it does. Sure. All right. So right before New Year's, Unsun calls her cousin and tells her that she's met a man. And she wants to bring him to their family's New Year's Eve party. It's a no-brainer. Like, of course she's going to. Because, like, her cousin's going to say, yes, bring him. Because Unsun didn't have an easy time dating. And she's so excited. And so she brings Larry to her cousin's ranch on this nice Normal, suburban, cul-de-sac, very America, right? Sounds like it. And her cousin's a tiny bit confused. And she told that same podcaster that they show up in this dirty, white, windowless van. (laughs) Never, ever, ever date a dude who drives a dirty, white, windowless van. Important cultural note. Good Lord. In America, you never want to do that. So they get back, they get to the back door of her cousin's house and her cousin meets him and she tells the podcast, I had a chill run down my back that I've never felt in my life, never had before. And he stuck out his hand and I saw the long, dirty fingernails that just creeped me out. That's nasty. Yeah. He seemed old. He had a mustache, 
or a moustache. He had this deep voice that leaned toward a drawl. He was bald, but on the sides, he had like this brown Einstein hair going on at all the angles. Nice. So he's a keeper. But his eyes, she remembers, looked like they weren't real. They were glassy. Right? Yeah. He tells her he owns property everywhere along the coast. Which coast? West Coast, because they're in California. He tells her he's a retired colonel from the U.S. Army. He tells her he used to work at the CIA. And I've got to tell you, people who tell you that they used to work at the CIA (laughs) are usually full of the poopy, poopy, poopy. (laughs) You know that, Unless you're from certain areas in down east Maine. And then they're definitely from the CIA. I know, but they don't offer it up. No, they're not like I own property everywhere. Oh, I was in the army. No, you're right. They don't. They they definitely got to know you before you find out. Exactly. So don't trust those people. So, anyways, Onsen and Larry get married unofficially in her backyard in 2001. Nobody in her entire family is really invited. There's no certificate. But there is a Star Trek theme. What? I know, man. So, there's no, no marriage certificate. They're not married. Unofficially, unofficially married. I'm right? Mm-hmm. And eventually, Larry starts doing the abuser thing, which often happens. You know, like, a lot of times, you get with someone, and they seem chill, and then they start manipulating you. Yeah. Punching the walls and being abusive. Right. And being abusive in a bigger way, right? He starts taking up more and more of her time, and she stops talking to her family and friends, which is also a very typical MO. And by sure is. It's so sad. I know you worked a ton I've of cases. I've never seen it around here. I mean, what? You ha- what? Shawnee used to be a popo, and he's dealt with a lot of domestic violence situations. He's just being nice about it. So she stops talking to her family and friends. It's June now. It's 2002. And nobody is hearing from her, like, at all. Sounds like three years. Or no, that's only another year. Yeah. Like, they marry, like, unofficially in the 2001. She introduces them to her family in 1999. But it's just, like, December. You know what I mean? Like, So, anyways, all of her family and friends notice, obviously, but then they notice, like, huh, it's really, really long. You know, like, you kind of, like, you're like, oh, I haven't heard from them in a little while. But they're like, oh, this is more than a little while, right? right? So they contact Larry and they ask, what up? what's up, man? And he has excuses. Her mom's sick and he had to take care of her is what he tells her friends. Oh, she's out of town checking on property they co-own, he says. Blah, blah, blah. But one of her friends is savvy and goes to the cops who have agreed to search their house. And when they do, they find all this kitty litter up in a crawl space and interspersed with that kitty litter are thing are like things for lighting, like wires and plugs and electrical cords. Oh, yeah? And they think what decent cops do when confronted with a massive pile of kitty litter <laughs> and electrical things in a crawl space. They plug their noses and they start going through it. And what do they find? At first, what they find is a flip-flop. Flip-flop. And what is attached to that flip-flop? A mummified foot. And then... That's culturally biased, this whole thing. And then they find other body parts, and it's poor Won Sun. She's been killed by blunt force trauma to her head, 
and then her body was taken apart and put in the kitty. Taken little, apart. Taken apart and put in the well, kitty. Well, make pot. it that much smaller. Really, you still take up the same amount of space, dude. It's just stupid. It's just what you got a little taller than longer. I mean, I don't know. It's stupid. So Larry is immediately a suspect. The cops. Well, no shit. Joke. <laughs> Like, I already said shit. You can say Oh, okay. No the, shit. <laughs> the cops link a man looking just like him to buying 10 bags of kitty litter when she disappeared. Imagine that. So and they, they don't have any cats, probably. No. They arrest him. They charge him. They run his fingerprints. And voila! Larry isn't Larry. He's Robert Evans. Larry, Robert, same thing. And Robert is someone who has a case on him all about child abandonment. And he has other aliases. So, Larry, <laughs> what? This is like half the guys you find on like one of the dating sites. Like, I can't. I'm not gonna name any. Tinder is in trouble. Tinder. <laughs> yeah, like that. Like, uh, Match.com does that still exist? Dudes that abandon their child, don't pay child support and stuff. I mean, dot com. And everybody's got a. <laughs> but everybody's got a story. They're driving around in like. The white, dirty a, van with no windows? <laughs> well, I was going to say like a Mercedes, uh, you know, that, uh, they, that yeah. they rented for a night. Or <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but anyway. normally it's the white, dirty van, but they wanted to have look good for their Tinder profile. See? Jeez, I'm crow. All right, ready? Yeah. So Larry, a.k.a. Robert, pleads guilty. He gets 15 years. To kill her? Yeah. Really? And while in the high desert prison in California, he dies of lung cancer. And you're like, okay, the story's over, right? Well, it should be. No, it's not over at all. Because in 2017, police finally figure out who Larry, a.k.a. Robert, really is. He's a family destroyer. He's a child killer. He's an abuser. And he's a man who kills his lovers. Okay. So right before Unsun disappeared, we're going to go back because I want to tell the story about this because to me, her friend is such an effing hero. Okay. Right? And I don't think any of my friends would do this. So right before, no offense to my friend. So right before she disappears, Unsun's friend Rose allegedly planned a trip with her. But when they talked on the phone, Unsun didn't seem right. She said they talked the next day, but the next day never happened, right? Yeah. And they never talked again. So Rose called the house yeah. again and again, and Unsun never answered. Yeah. And after a bunch of calls, Larry finally calls her back, Rose, and says, Unsun's too fragile. She can't talk. She's depressed. She was in another state. She was in Virginia. She was in Oregon. And those were all effing lies, right? right? We know right. because... She's in a friggin' pile of kitty litter, this poor, poor woman, you know, in the cross space. Yeah. And Rose was tenacious. Rose didn't stop calling because she's a good friend with a good instinct about lying liars who lie with dirty fingernails and dirty white vans with no windows. Look at how clean my fingernails are. Baby, you've got beautiful fingernails. So Rose was so intrigued about what was going on that she started to kind of like try to manipulate Larry. And she started to try to offer him help just to get in that house, right? She's like, oh, I'll clean it before she comes back. 
That would be so nice for her. I know that's so hard for you. You know, you got all that stuff going on. She's like, oh, I'll come cook for you. You must be so hungry with, that, with your wife gone all the time, right? Heck yeah, man. If the woman's not here to cook, what the heck's going on? Yeah, like he had no meal train <laughs> going on. And, Jesus <laughs> but anyway, she's like, all these things, and he's all all these offers, and he's always like, no, 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 no. Yeah. And then she's finally like fed up because she's like, you're a lying liar, lies. And she's like, I need you to have her call me. If I don't hear her voice, I will call the police in 10 days. Yeah. And she never hears that voice. 10 days is too long, man. It's a long time. She was very kind. Not that I was save her, but it was a no. long time. And so she never hears her voice, and she calls her the police. And uh, Officer Roxanne Grunhide, sorry, I'm probably butchering her name, now retired, response, right? And she brings Larry in for questioning. And he sits in front of a small desk in the off PD, right? And his T-shirt and his gray pants and glasses are on top of that bald crown of his. And he rambles during the interview, and he actually turns philosophical, which I think is a really bad sign. And he says crap like this. Now I've always tried to live by the motto that there's no defense against the truth, but sometimes it's hard to find out what the truth is. You've got one side, the other side, and sometimes down the middle that some people might perceive to be the truth. So he sounds like a politician. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So he's lying to the officers, he says, again, you know, the same thing he told Rose. His wife's in Oregon, and they're building a cabin there. No, no, there's no way to contact her. Of course not. No, wait, she's in Oregon seeing a therapist. She had a breakdown, so they can call her. No, wait, talking to the police would just make her have a panic attack. He even memorized a therapist in Oregon's phone number to try to convince them, and he allegedly calls during the police interview, but he doesn't talk. The psychiatrist that he has the name of, the police call themselves, right? And they say, like, the psychiatrist is like, I can't tell you if this woman's a patient because of privacy law. But eventually, they're like, yeah, no. Because if they're not a patient, it's not a violation. Exactly. Yeah. And so eventually, they're like, yeah, no, we're not treating anyone matching this woman's description. Mm -hmm. And Larry, Larry's not to speak poorly of dead murderers, but he's a (laughs) cocky asshole. And he gives them his name, Larry William Vanner. And he gives them his date of birth. But there's no driver's license attached to that name. There's just an index number, which is what happens a lot of the time in the system when you don't have a real ID. Did that ever happen to you? When you're a cop, you ever find anyone like that? Probably, but not quite the same descriptive. Yeah. Okay. So they fingerprint him. And Larry, a.k.a. Bob, he's an idiot. He's like, yeah, you can fingerprint me because he's a cocky asshole. Mm -hmm. So Roxanne, that police officer... Drives him to another police building in another part of town and talks to him on the way. But it wasn't chatter. Roxanne's smart. And she's a smart cop. And she's trying to figure things out this whole entire ride. And so she starts talking about accents. And she mentions hers. She sounds like New York. All Long Island vowels. But she can't pinpoint his. And then... She tells um, New Hampshire Public Radio, which did an interview with her... He stopped dead in his conversation, looked at me, and then got really close to me, looked me straight in the eye, and he says, that's none of your damn business. (laughs) Boom. 
So they print him, they bring him back, he sits in a room alone waiting until they get results back and they go in. And this is from a Vayner 2002 interview. Uh, so this is like the actual thing from the interview yeah. with Larry from the detective. So the detective one goes, all right, Larry, your prince came back. You know your other name, right? And detective two goes, Curtis or Gerald or Jerry or whatever name you're going by this week. And detective one goes, Curtis Kimball. And detective two goes, Curtis Kimball or Gerald Mocker. What's the other one? Detective one, Mockerman. Detective two, Mockerman, right? Detective one, ring a bell, Larry. No? <laughs> yeah, that's who you are, man, says detective one. But it wasn't. So Curtis Kimball was really Bob Evans, who was really Larry, who was really Terry Rasmussen. But the cops had not figured that out yet, right? They just hadn't gotten there, which is confusing, right? Yeah. So what the cops now know is that Larry is a bullshit name. He has other aliases, but Terry Rasmussen wasn't one of those yet. And they were super focused on Curtis Kimball because Curtis was on parole, which was what they needed as officers of the law to read him his rights and arrest him. So once that happened, Larry, who was really Bob, who was really Curtis, who was really Terry, doesn't say anything because Curtis had violated his parole. And now the police can search the house that he was living in with mm -hmm. Hun Sun. And that's when they went back to East Richmond Heights and they found her. They walked around that house looking for her, like looking in room after room after room. And outside they find a dead kitten, which is never a good sign. What? He's yeah. a kitten killer? Apparently he's, that a, motherfucker. he's a cocky asshole motherfucker. Jeez. So <laughs> outside. I mean, you can kill a woman, but don't kill him. <laughs> he's no, he's kidding. kidding. Don't I'm kill anything. Kidding. Outside the popo see... A shed, and inside it, part of the dirt dirt floor has been dug up, dug up, dug up. Sorry, I can't speak English. I'm just a writer. I only write it. And they look inside write it. and write it. <laughs> I sound like you said write it. I only write it. I only write it. Um, and they look inside it, right? And it looks like someone started to dig the dirt floor and then like gave up because it was huh. too hard. So then they go into the garage and they see Unsun's pottery studio and her kilns and her pottery and her creations are lining the walls of the garage, right? Which mm -hmm. is so lovely. And you just like kind of imagine like this place of her creativity and her space and her peace. But back in the garage, in the back part, there's a door and that door leads to that crawl space, eight by 10, with a really low ceiling. And that's where they find the kitty litter. And that's where Grunheld followed her partner in and he said, you need to come take a look at this. And she shined her flashlight and there was the kitty litter piled like sand. And there was blood splatter on the ductwork in there. And New Hampshire Public Radio writes, the cat litter wasn't Kimball's only attempt at covering up the evidence of the crime. A neighbor told Roxanne, the detective, that Kimball had also been out hosing the driveway one day when he casually mentioned that he was dealing with a rat infestation. If there were any strange smells coming from that garage, don't worry about it. <laughs> what an idiot that guy was. He's cocky, arrogant. No, he's an idiot. Crazy murdering asshole. Why would you ever say anything like that? Good God. I don't know. All right, so let's go back to Terry, his damn self. 
Because that's who this man really is. Born back in 1943, Terry Rasmussen was a wild-haired, pale, blue-eyed man who spent about six years in the Army in the late 1960s, right? Yeah. And then he went to Hawaii after that in 1969, headed to Phoenix, Arizona with his brand-new wife, and he was an electrician. Nothing really out of the ordinary that anybody knows about him then. They leave Phoenix about a year later, head to Redwood City, California. Four years later, his wife leaves him and takes her kids. He goes to Texas, spends his time in Castle Del Rey apartments for four years, and by the summer of 1978, he has a new job in Houston working at Brown and Root Company. Simple enough, right? But then things go weird. Terry starts calling himself Robert T. Evans instead of his real name. (laughs) And he calls himself Bob to his friends. And he heads to my home state of New Hampshire, and he starts a job at the Wombeck Mills. And he, he's still an electrician, right? Mm-hmm. So let me set the scene a little bit for all of you who don't know about New Hampshire. Wombeck Mills is on Commercial Street in Manchester, New Hampshire, our biggest city. And it's got the stereotypical look of a New England mill on the Merrimack River. Is that your phone? Nope. Is your phone coming through your computer? Oh, my God. That's terrible. Yeah, it is, because I silenced my phone. I'm so sad. And this is what happens when you have an unprofessional podcast. You drop your phone on the floor. Twice. Twice. Oh. Anyways, we're not even going to edit that out, because we're all about being real. So. Anyways. Or maybe we're about being lazy. Who knows? It could be the same thing. All right. So, our biggest city is Manchester, New Hampshire. It's a mill town. There's five floors of massive windows and white window sills pushed into a red brick facade. It's an easy place to get lost or to remake yourself. And that's what Terry did. So Terry was a man who made a many a baby. He had at least four kids who survived <laughs> him. And three of those kids agreed to interviews with various media outlets. And two of them were twins, Diana and Andrea. And they hadn't seen their father for 40 years by the time that they were interviewed. And so that last time was in the mid-1970s. They grew up, they said, in an abusive house. Their mother would leave them, padlock the fridge, and basically say, fend for yourself. Yeah. And, like, Diane actually is so sad because she would daydream that her dad would come and save them. Right? And her dad was Terry Rasmussen. Also known as Curtis. Also known as Larry. Also known as Bob. And their mom would tell, wouldn't tell her anything about her dad except to say that he was the love of her life. And that love of her life killed the twin's half-sister, who he fathered when she was a toddler sometime between 1977 and 1981. No one knows her name, but the twins call her Anita Moon, and they think they, he killed her because he was a racist and she wasn't white but half-Asian. So I guess it's okay to like have sex with someone who's Asian, but not to have a baby with them. Right. I don't even know. So looking like him haunts his daughter, Andrea, who told WMUR TV, I really can't stand my face because sometimes when I look in the mirror, because I look like him, you know, it's, it's hard. And one of the girls, like once they found out from mm-hmm. New Hampshire police that their father had this murdering spree, Their mom told them that though he was never abusive to them, he was indeed abusive to their brother, who he burned with cigarettes. 
Jesus. But he was the love of her life. Yeah. Anyways, their goal, these these twins, was to figure out who their half-sister was and ask people to upload their raw DNA into GenMatch in hopes of finding her. So how does all of this like, connect to his murder of Unsung to Bear Brook State Park in New Hampshire and the Allentown 4. I'm still waiting for that. All right, so here's a direct quote, because this is going to explain it. By 1978, Rasmussen was dating Mary Elizabeth Honeychurch. Honeychurch was last seen in California on Thanksgiving Day that year. After an argument with her family, she left with Rasmussen and her two daughters, six-year-old Marie Elizabeth Vaughn and her one-year-old daughter, Sarah Lynn McWaters, in November 1985, the bodies of Honeychurch and Vaughn were found in a barrel in Bearbrook State Park in uh, Allenstown, New Hampshire. Yeah. yeah. And they were found to have died of blunt force trauma to their heads. Another barrel 100 yards away, right? Yeah. Um, They find in 2000. Wait a minute. Yes, 15 fucking years 15 later. years for 100 yards? Yeah. They didn't like search the and surrounding be like, Oh, there's area? another barrel over oh, there. Oh my God. <clears throat> Anyways. Yeah, uh-huh. I yeah. The second barrel contained what? Um, the body of Mick Walters and an unidentified child between the ages of two and four. Wow. So this woman yeah. and her two kids are all dead. And then there's another dead kid in that mm -hmm. barrel, right? Mm -hmm. So they didn't figure out the identities of Honeychurch and her two kids until 2019, and that was done via DNA profiling, right? Right. And as of June 2019, and as of now, that third kid, they still don't understand who she is, but they right. do know that Rasmussen was her father. Wow. So... You know, it's probably that kid. So that's they, four people he killed right there, huh? Yeah. Um, so, while using the pseudonym Bob Evans, this guy dates another person, Denise. And Denise Bowden, she is from Manchester, New Hampshire, which is a city, again, right next to the town, Bedford, where I grew up with. And it's Thanksgiving, 1981. She has a six-month-old daughter, and she... And her daughter disappear, And police believe they're dead because they've disappeared and they're connected to Terry, right? Yeah. And they think that she dies somewhere in California. They still haven't found her body. She's never reported missing because her family were like, oh, you know, like she's having some really hard times with money and she probably just skipped out. So they didn't report her missing. Kind of lame, but okay. Yeah, well, it's New Hampshire. So all during the <laughs> 80s, right, the beginning of the decade, mm -hmm. Terry Rasmussen keeps Bowden's daughter, her six-month-old daughter, and he calls her Lisa, and he pretends to be her biological father. And in 1985, that's when he's arrested under that name, Curtis Kimball. Yeah. And he's like arrested for being drunk while driving. Mm -hmm. And because she's in the car, he, there's also the endangering the welfare of the child, right? Right. But he doesn't show up in court. And then he changes his name to Gordon Jensen. He leaves Lisa at an RV park in Scotts Valley, California in 1986. 
And then he gets arrested again under another alias, if you remember from earlier in the podcast, Jerry Mockerman. And that time is for driving a stolen vehicle, and it's 1988. It's 19, next year, he gets a three-year prison sentence, right, for leaving was, her yeah. in the freaking RV park, right, which is child abandonment. He makes a plea. He gets in it. And so they drop the child abuse charge, which is nothing when you're a murderer, I guess. And he eventually gets paroled, but then he runs off, right? Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like 1990 to 1999, there's a big gap in yeah, this guy's is. life. And that in 1999 is when he meets up with Ensum. Oh, okay. So I don't know what he was doing between 1990 and 1999, but I can't imagine it was anything good. No, I'm no. sure it wasn't. Yeah. So. There's a criminologist guy, Jack Levin, and he thinks that Rasmussen is, quote, unlike any serial killer he has ever studied, stating, again, quote, what distinguishes Rasmussen from most serial killers is that he targeted people with whom he had a relationship, and most serial killers would never do that. It's like the last things they're going to do. Instead, they focus on complete strangers. And he calls Rasmussen, Rasmussen the chameleon killer because he used so many aliases, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and there's, like, some other theories about him and what yeah. he's done. Like, there, there's um, a kid, Lauren Ron, who was 14, and she lived in Manchester and disappeared and has never been found. Mm-hmm. And she lived, like, a mile and a half away from him. There's a 25-year-old lady, Denise Denault, um, and she lives only two blocks away from him in 1980, and she's never been found, like, but they're on the same street. Right. And, um, like, it's just, like, he could potentially be linked to a bunch of more killings, but he is mm-hmm. dead, and it's a long time ago, so they don't know. There's even a lady or young girl who's 17, and her name was Elizabeth Lamont, and she was at a youth development center in 1984 in Manchester. And she got a um, furlough from that group. Um, and she never even got reported missing until 2017 when they started Holy looking crap. at Rasmussen. So, like, they think, like, like, a tipster, like, this person calling and thought she might have been Elizabeth Evans, who was, like, listed as his wife when he mm-hmm. was living in Manchester. But... Um, it turned out she wasn't his victim. She was also a victim, like part of the redhead murders. Yeah, which is totally unrelated, but a bunch of homicides across the U.S. We might do another podcast on that one too because it's interesting, right? Yes. Yeah. So, anyways, it's a lot of shit. It is. Yeah, and you gotta feel bad for Elisa, you know, because. You know, she finds out that this guy who abandoned her killed her mom, and, you know, it's crazy. Oh, he's an evil dude. He was really evil. Good lord. Yeah. And, like, but all of this was all linked and solved because of DNA. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. Nowadays. And they're still, like, hoping that there's going to be new tips and and stuff that happen from this whole event. Sequence. You never know. No. What do you think about it? I think it's awesome. What part is awesome? The DNA part. Oh, all right. I think Rasmussen was a crazy fucker. 
Can you imagine, like, just killing the people who loved you over no, and over? No, especially little kids. Well, that's, like, I don't know why, but it's, like, horrifying to kill anyone. But when you kill, kill a little, little oh, baby. Yeah. People do it all the time, but it's sick, sick, sick. It is sick. And how sick is it? Like, like what was it about him that he kept doing that over and over and over again? You know, what it was going on in his brain? That, I don't know, but I thought I noticed that a couple, a few of those things always happen, seem to happen around Thanksgiving. I think you're right. Yeah. I wonder if there was something that but happened. But then they stopped, we stopped losing track of time. Yeah. Like that, so. There was at least really two, though. Yeah. It's effed up. Maybe he had some weird... Maybe he was molested as a, a child maybe. around Thanksgiving. Or maybe something horrible happened in the army. Because that seems to be, from what we know of him, what the break uh, was. Breaking you know? point, yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he was molested in the army around Thanksgiving. Maybe. But I think that's a bit <laughs> of a reach right there. You know, you know. Anyways, it's sad. It is. And, and especially sad about just like how Onsen's friends and family tried so hard and how it just fell into that typical pattern of You know what's amazing violence. to me that we should do a podcast on sometime is just the sheer amount of people in this country alone, in the United States alone, that like go missing and are never found. There's so many. Or are found decades later, but... Oh, the statistics I mean, are astonishing. And, like, you know, most of the people in this case were white, but some were mm -hmm. Asian. And um, when you're not white, the number, the amount oh, of yeah, media no, and mean, stuff that shows you up... You have a podcast just based on missing white people, but then when you add in the... The, Which you wouldn't want to do, just on missing white people. No, I yeah. know that, but I'm saying the totality of the circumstances is huge, but a lot of them you, you never even hear of, they're, or they're not reported. I know. And that's really sad, and it's sort of like a systemic issue with yeah, our media, and with our culture, and with it's totally everything. totally systemic. Yeah, it's horrifying. All right, we're way off topic here. I know, I'm so sorry. I mean, not really. Kind of. But kind of, but isn't it sad? But <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad they eventually figured parts of this case out. Yeah. But what I'm terrified about is how many other people we don't know about. Oh, I know. It's crazy. And then also for his poor kids. Like, what is it like when you find out via DNA that your dad is, or mom, whatever. A serial killer? Yeah. Basically? Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. Of your other half-siblings, yeah. <laughs> basically. But remember, your parents aren't you. That's right. Your parents aren't you. You get to make your own decisions. That's for sure. You don't carry the burdens of their sons. That's right. I hope to God that's true. It is true. <laughs> it better be true. <laughs> Stay safe. Hey, thank you for listening to Dude No. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And tell all your friends what a goofy couple has this podcast and how good it is to listen to. <laughs> be kind. Be kind. Be kind. Yes. Thank you. <laughs>